This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. This Table Podcast is part of a student dinner program where we ask an expert to discuss a topic and then take student questions. They are part of the larger table podcast collection. If you want to see those podcasts, you can check them out at www.dts.edu slash the table where you can get the full array of podcasts, chapels, and dinner discussions that the table hosts. We hope you enjoy this special dinner edition of the table podcast. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. This particular dinner podcast involves Ed Stetzer, who runs the research program at Lifeway Publishing. And we asked him the question, is evangelicalism really in decline? And he brought to the dinner a discussion of the current status of evangelicalism in the United States. I think you'll find it a fascinating conversation, and I even think you'll find the answer quite surprising. The Honorable Ed Stetzer from Nashville, Tennessee. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yes. And Lifeway Publishing and Christianity Today, and what you know, what else can we? Put into the mix. Motivational speaker living in a van down by the river. That that sounds exciting. Looks sounds like you're real successful. I am enjoying it. That's right. Well, um, our topic is we're going to continue our discussion from earlier today. For those of you who weren't with us earlier today, um, uh, Ed went through some statistics that he said uh, that some people use to portray the collapse. Uh, the coming collapse of evangelicalism and argued that those statistics actually don't represent uh, the reality of what we are experiencing. So we're going to pick up that discussion uh, now. And in particular, I want to talk about kind of uh, where we are and where we're going in evangelicalism. You mentioned the Bevington um, definition of evangelicalism. So it might be good. Most people... Um, probably are on seminary campuses are aware of that definition, but it probably wouldn't be a bad idea to go through that for people who say, well, what is evangelicalism allegedly anyway? Yeah. So let's start there. Let's start with the definition of what evangelicalism is. Well, you know, that's one definition, of course. Right. It's, it's not the only definition. And, and I think it's, you know, it's probably necessary because of what we talked about earlier. You know, Joel Osteen, Brian McLaren, um, John MacArthur, uh, or Rachel Held Evans, for that matter, mm -hmm. who's uh, become a prominent blogger and writer. Well, now you're moving um, outside the evangelical trinity, and I'm getting nervous. Yes, that's true. That's <laughs> true. Um, but, but I would say, you know, Rachel Held Evans has said she's an evangelical. Right. Um, and so, so what does that look like? Well, Bevington, uh, kind of, if you go back to when, uh, years ago, you, people said an evangelical was someone. And so the Billy Graham connection was really helpful because conversionism is not 
held broadly outside of evangelicalism. So for example, mainline Protestantism, you tend not to have a strict conversionism. They don't say, you know, well, you're 11, have you received Christ? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of an evangelical uh, process, if you will, or, or focus. So what, what Bebbington said was- Well, the rumor the, has that John 1 did talk about receiving Christ. Yeah, and I would say, I mean, you know, you're a New Testament scholar, so I don't <laughs> want to toy with you. Yeah. Uh, but I would also say that that verse has been interpreted many, many different ways. Many is receiving- yeah, don't mess with Texas. Okay, sorry. Uh, <laughs> did you say like, Texas? What does that got to do with anything? Is that what we're going to say? They're going to go George Bush? I'm like, don't mess with Texas. Um, so, so the Bebbington quadrilateral, right? So four things is uh, biblicism, uh, high regard for the Bible. Um, some would say uh, inerrancy. You're, Dallas is an, 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 an inerrantist institution, right? That's correct. Okay, and so, so would I be? So inerrancy, but outside of that, evangelicals would include people who are in fallo, fallibility or mm -hmm. inspirationist things. High of that regard sort. for scripture. High regard for scripture. So biblicism, mm -hmm. uh, crucicentrism, right? Mm -hmm. So the atoning work of Christ on the cross, his death on the cross for us and in our place. Uh, conversionism, that's the Billy Graham question. Mm -hmm. You need to be born again. Mm -hmm. um, so a perfect example for this would be, we, we, I mentioned George Bush a minute ago. Uh, George Bush Sr., H.W. Um, uh, Bush, was a mainline Protestant. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the awkward moments was people would ask him, are you born again? And he said, well, I'm Episcopal. I've been Episcopalian my whole life. And so, but there wasn't that answer when you That's asked right. George Bush that question right. or Barack Obama that question. Mm -hmm. There are conversion stories that are articulated in both of those cases. So conversionism is, that's why uh, George W. Bush is often considered an evangelical, whereas father was not using Texas examples. And then activism, uh, the belief that the gospel is, you know, somehow shared or expressed or, or, or lived, the implications are lived out. So that's as good a definition probably as, as many. What, there's different ways to define it. So sometimes just ask people, are you an evangelical? I was talking to Rodney Stark um, a few weeks ago at, uh, he's at Baylor now, but very world-renowned mm -hmm. sociologist. And he said, that's the best definition. If you ask people, people and then if they say yes, they are. <laughs> he says, it's like asking a Democrat, are you a Democrat? They say yes, you count them as a Democrat. So there's some validity in that. Mm -hmm. But also a lot of people are inactive evangelicals. Um, so there's that. So, but then there's uh, beliefs. So some organizations have created belief constructs that say this makes an evangelical. Um, there's, um, there's, there's actually what we call the, I mentioned earlier, the RELTRAD construct, which is a research construct, sits over top the GSS. So there's a lot of different ways to do that. And the RELTRAD really bases on do they go to evangelical denominations? So, for example, I met over here some folks who were ACNA, uh, the Anglican Church in North America. Their pastor is a, a friend of mine. Uh, and I work a lot with the ACNA, Archbishop Duncan before. Um, but so in ACNA, they would be decidedly evangelical. They're mm -hmm. more than evangelical, but they're evangelical. Um, but then the Episcopal Church, which is really from which they came out of, would not be. So both are Anglican in their belief. One, because of their biblicism, crucicentrism, conversionism, and activism, would be evangelical, with some others mixed in as well. But one would be evangelical, one would be mainline Protestant. But statistically, that distinction is one of the most important distinctions you have to make because um, there really is a, a, a vast statistical difference. And I would also say that theologically it's important. Um, you have to, and, and, and I am not one, and Daryl, I don't know where you are on this, I'm not one who thinks outside of evangelicalism there is no faith and there is no salvation. Uh, but what I would say is, I mean, I'm an evangelical because I think it most aligns with the biblical texts, the teachings, the call of Jesus on my life. But I also recognize there are genuine believers outside of the evangelical traditions. Um, but I think you have to sort of wrestle. What does that look like? Do we, 
Do we evangelize people who are part of what some people call the grand tradition, um, but who are outside of evangelicalism and don't express a, a born-again experience? Actually, I, I tend to do that, depending upon how they would articulate that. Uh, I, I tend to do that. So that's long answer to your short question, but that's sort of the definition people often use. Well, let's, let's, let's talk about another element that's important to evangelicalism and, and looking a little bit back as well as thinking about the present. You did talk this morning a little bit about the contrast of the fact that you can have different kinds of people labeled as evangelicals, and the spectrum that you used was John MacArthur, who I probably represents the right end of that spectrum. I would say, right. yes. And then, and then. There, is, there is some room to the right of John MacArthur, <laughs> just not a lot. <laughs> okay. um, I'm glad you some. made that clear. There is some. Um, I've met the guy. Um, yeah. And then Brian McLaren, who probably represents the other end of the spectrum. I would not consider Brian McLaren an evangelical. Okay. I'm just saying people, Time Magazine listed him as an evangelical. I think Brian McLaren has jettisoned out of evangelicalism. It's probably fair. Yeah, and so I would consider, I think he was an evangelical. Mm-hmm. Um, but so was uh, Doug Padgett, who, mm-hmm. was, who was the youth pastor for Leith Anderson uh, at Wooddale Church. And now Leith is the president of the National Association of Evangelicals. And Doug wouldn't consider himself at all an evangelical. He's a friend of mine, but he's not at all an evangelical. And then Joel Osteen was the third example yeah. that you used to... Who knows where he fits in? The well, spot. but I think I think you got to say that Osteen, though I think a lot of us would have theological, um, we want to we want to address some things. Uh, I think Osteen is largely seen as probably a key evangelical leader uh, in the United States today. But he's sort of an outlier. Every generation has an outlier like this. Um, Norman Vincent Peale three generations ago, Robert Schuller two generations ago, Joel Osteen this generation. Um, they tend to be seen in some ways as evangelicals. Of course, uh, both Norman Vincent Peale and, and, uh, and Robert Schuller were, were, were part of the RCA or the CRC, uh, which are sort of evangelical-friendly denominations but are more mainline. But, but yeah, so Osteen, Osteen is in a category uh, by himself, both by his influence, but also by, I mean, he doesn't express enough theology to know um, where exactly to, to place him. On a theological, well, I don't. I don't mean that in a mean sense. I mean, I'm not. I mean, it's obvious that you know I'm kind of a Bible thumping preacher, so I'm not. You know, I, I come from a different realm. But, but I mean, I have friends who are friends with Joel, and and if you look at the documents at their church, they they wouldn't look dissimilar to the documents at my church. It's just more of a public expression of what that looks like, or I shouldn't say just my church. Some of you're like, oh, your church. I wouldn't look very different than your church either. Uh, so, um, but it gets that that public expression is just different. That that's probably what a lot of us define Joel Osteen by. Well, one of the things that I think evangelicalism used to be defined by in part, and you alluded to this already, is you know someone who's for Billy Graham yeah. in one way or another. That there yeah. was a visible central figure who kind of was like a magnet for the movement and a, and a centralizing force, mm-hmm. uh, a, a place to land and identify. I think it would be fair to say that we don't have anything like that today. Um, Agreed. That, that there is no central figure who said, who you look at and you go, that represents um, kind of what evangelicalism is all about. And, and that one of the things that's happening, you mentioned this earlier today, too, you talked about being more a center person than a border person, which I take to mean that uh, you have a sense of when someone is evangelical, but defining where its borders are and when you cross the line is a, is a harder business. It's harder. <clears throat> um, uh, and and that's why the Bevington uh, definition is so important in yeah. understanding what evangelicalism is. But but I would say if you're borderless, <clears throat> see see there, there's a there's a tricky reality right now, is that um, 
is that people wanted to be defined as an evangelical. I think I might have mentioned this earlier, either in our conversation in your office or not mm-hmm. here. People want to be defined as an evangelical because if you can say I'm an evangelical who's just speaking to other evangelicals about their need to change. I did mention that earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there has to be a sense where, no, you know what? I, I get it, but really you're not. You're not uh, of this. You're really not of the same faith in the sense that that we have the same goals, we hold the same view of Scripture. And I know that seems harsh, but ultimately everybody wants to be an evangelical because to become a mainline Protestant is largely to be banished into outer nothingness mm-hmm. because nobody's listening to mainline Protestants. Mm-hmm. And I mean, think about who are the we we did a survey a couple few years ago. Who are the leading preachers uh, in the United States that people are listening to? The pastors are listening to. So we asked all pastors. And, and I forget who they, they, they were. Chuck Swindoll was on the list. I have to mention that because that's important to you. Um, I know he's like the fourth member of the Trinity here. Um, but, but it was Andy Stanley. I don't remember the order. Andy Stanley, Charles Stanley. Um, it was John MacArthur. It was Chuck Swindoll. I think it was Chuck Smith. And it was devoid of any mainline Protestant except Barbara Brown Taylor, hmm. who's a, a remarkable writer uh, and, and speaker. Uh, in the mainline Protestant tradition. But I think it's important that when you survey all Protestants, the evangelical preachers are the one that they listen to. So those are the ones who are getting the book contracts, the, 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 the book publishing deals. So if you can say you're an evangelical for as long as possible and maybe not reveal your beliefs, but sort of, sort of hint at them and sort of be seen as a prophet telling evangelicals they need to lighten up, I, I think what happens is you sort of, you, you become... I mean, look, look at the emergent movement. Yeah, emergent. this is actually where I was going with yeah. my question. So, yeah. so, so emergent mm-hmm. and the emerging church, which, which again, um, I, was, I was a sympathetic observer mm-hmm. and seen as by the emergent leaders uh, as an honest critic. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and what, what, what happened is, and I, I actually created probably the first framework where people sort of talked about streams of the emerging church that became widely used. Um, but what happened is, so I'm, I'm for this, right? I'm for any kind of, mission-driven approach to engage culture in a fresh new way. I think it's great. Right. Um, but what happened was, I think a lot of people recognize the emergent lost its uh, mojo. It's a mm-hmm. technical missiological term. That's right. Uh, but emergent lost its mojo when it detached from evangelicalism. It wanted to be a third way. Everyone mm-hmm. wants to be a third way. Um, a third way between evangelicalism and mainline Protestantism. And really, it just became an avant-garde wing of mainline Protestantism. Mm-hmm. And then what were huge bestsellers... You know, what was Brian McLaren's last book? Do you know? I don't know what his last yeah. book is. But you know uh, a, a new kind of Christian. Yeah. But you know everything must change mm-hmm. because those were the evangelical years. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is, is, is eventually in jettisoning out of evangelicalism, you lose your influence because mainline Protestantism is, I mean, evangelicalism is really mainline Protestantism. Evangelicalism is larger, substantially larger than mainline Protestantism today. You just don't know that because mainline Protestants have the, the levers of media and power and evangelicals are on, on the fringe. They're not in New York City where the, the, uh, the God Box is. The mm-hmm. God Box is a famous building in Manhattan that, uh, that, that was, was actually built related to some key leaders of industry and government who said, we're going to put a place in Manhattan. So these mainline, they didn't call mainline, they were just the churches, could be close to the center of power. Well, now they're, they're clo- kind of closing up. The mm-hmm. National Council of Churches is... Closing up, looking for a smaller place because they just have, you know, the Episcopal Church. Uh, Catherine Jefford Shiori, who's, who's actually a friend. Um, but they're, they're shrinking down the whole structure. But they still have, I mean, everyone in the media knows who Catherine Jefford Shiori is, who leads the, one of the fastest shrinking churches in America today. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but probably many people in the mainline media. When I when I talked to them uh, last night, Katie Kirk tweeted. Um, I guess it was the night before last. It was it was uh, no, it was it was last night. Katie Kirk tweeted, heard a new word in church today, uh, eschatology. Anyone? Question mark. In other words, what does this mean? Mm -hmm. And Christians responded as graciously as they always do on the internet. <laughs> uh, and uh, but but I will tell you, they don't. They don't know who Chuck Swindoll is. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't know who Tim. Well, they might know who Tim Keller is because he's he's engaged some of those levers of power. Mm -hmm. But I think that's part of the route. It makes it look bigger than it actually is. But Emergent, Emergent is an organization, and then eventually a movement. It was had a lot of promise. I mean, uh, uh, Phyllis Tickle wrote a book, uh, The Great Emergence. Maybe I'm trying to remember the exact title, um, and I'll look it up here. Um, but she she wrote the book and and said, you know, it's kind of talked about the emergence as this great you know, 500 year move of the church. And, and, and I kind of felt bad because Phyllis is a great writer to, but to write the book, it's called Great Emergence, to write the book saying, this is it, how Christianity is changing and why this is one of the great moves, like about, you get it published and then a year later it all sort of collapses. And, and now someone on, online called me emergent the other day. Um, and I'm like, is that a thing? Is that still a thing? I mean, can you even call somebody that? Um, so I, so I, think, I think those are some of the shifts. So I think evangelicalism, for all its faults, still, is the, still has a center. People are trying to reclaim that center. I think, again, and, and I think your evangelical manifesto was an attempt. This, we believe, was an attempt. The Gospel Coalition probably has been the most successful of the attempts as far as in prominence, but sort of hasn't rallied certainly Arminians, dispensationalists, Pentecostals, and others. So I don't know. I mean, I think we need another rallying point. And I think, again, I'll, I'll just be blunt. I think people like you, Daryl, and people at other schools and other institutions and other churches need to say, uh, this we believe, we're in this together, this is what evangelicalism is, and give a new face to some of the angry rhetoric that sometimes we see. So your closing here suggests the next question, which is, we talked a little bit this morning about tone and winsomeness, et cetera. Where, where do you see evangelicalism being today? You said it, you suggested it's not exactly healthy, but it's not exactly collapsing. Yeah. Um, so that, I guess, yeah, I think you said it has a cold. So, <laughs> so I want to know about the Kleenex. Yeah. And then, uh, and then the, the second question is, what's, what's the future of evangelicalism? And as a person goes out as an evangelical in, in a world that itself is adjusting to all kinds of cultural change, yeah. uh, what advice would you give in terms of how to look at the future? Yeah, let me see if I can, if I can pull up a couple of, uh, couple of things that may, that may help. We're in the process of doing some research. I'm on the board uh, of the National Association of Evangelicals. Um, and when we kind of look at you know, what, what, are, what are the numbers that we're looking at here? And, and I, we've got a couple of graphs, I think, that are helpful if I can pull them up. And I, I don't know if I'll be able to do it quickly enough for our conversation. But, but, uh, but basically, I, I think that evangelicalism um, as a movement uh, ha had peaked in the 90s. Um, but I think, I really wish I could find this. It's kind of driving me nuts. Um, but I think that it might be helpful to, to know that that uh, if you look at two major, you know, Gordon Conwell has a great uh, Center for the Study of Global Christianity. Um, and then there's, uh, uh, gosh, I'm trying to remember the other research firm. But they both sort of did a look at the percentage of evangelicals and, and the number of evangelicals in North America. And, of course, Canada is slightly different, but everything's just sort of lowered mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in Canada. You know, it's, it's the numerically. But if you look, and here it is, here it is. So... Um, 
here's a couple of uh, graphs that may that may help give us a picture of this. Um, the the uh, here is Operation World Evangelicals, and if you look at, let me just zero in on Northern America, you can see that about. Uh, 24% in 1970 were evangelicals. It went up 2010 to 26.8 or 27%, and it's projected to go down to uh, 26.5%. Now, you, you, I mean, you tell me, so this, is, this is real research, the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, Christianity's Global Context. This is, um, this is not you know, pop stuff, so this <laughs> is real research. And you tell me, is a 0.3% decline from 2010 to 2020 uh, collapse. I, I don't think I would say that. Now, I, I actually prefer the definition from the World Christian Database Evangelicals. Um, this is Todd Johnson's work. Mm -hmm. And the reason I prefer it is it, it's not, this is uh, more identification. Mm -hmm. This is like I can count you in a denomination. Um, and so it's higher. But I think this is a more accurate statistic, and, and where they use the numbers that I use, is, is the, in, Northern, in Northern America, about 15.4% in 1970, dropped to about 13.5 uh, in 2010, peaked in the 90s, uh, and then from 2010 to 2020, about 13.4. So pretty much stable now. Mm -hmm. So I think, and, and again, it's, if you, we can write it out if it helps, but I think that about 12 to 13% of the population in North America is, is actively convictionally evangelical and that number has not is not substantially declining but has remained relatively steady for the last several decades and that's in contrast as you mentioned earlier today the uh, the mainline denominations it's about like catholics is that fair in terms of catholics are also relatively steady in terms yeah. of the way now catholics are, are are steady in a in a strange way because migration has impacted that so substantially latino migration and so if you go to the Northeast, we, we did, I recently spoke to the judicatory leaders in the Northeast of mm -hmm. about 15, 20 denominations. And evangelicalism, Protestantism, and Catholicism have taken huge hits mm -hmm. in the early uh, part of the last decade, largely partly because of the scandals. And so, but the Latino migration has bolstered Catholics. It hasn't bolstered Protestant, mainline Protestants there. Mm -hmm. uh, and evangelicals, it has. Yeah, so it depends on where you are. that actually raises a whole other question when you think about the discussion of evangelicalism. And one of the issues here is, of course, we're tucked away in the what is sometimes alluded to as the buckle of the Bible sure, belt. Sure. Um, Dal Dallas is the center of the evangelical universe. And uh, so. um, I'll just pass by that. Not just the but city, but this school. Yes, I know. Uh, You're doing very, very yes, well. Yes. <laughs> I'll slip you the deeper, 20 later. Exactly. Um, exactly. And. Uh, this episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. Uh, but having said that, it really does matter where you are in the country in terms yeah. of what the evangelical influence is. If you go to parts of the Northeast or parts of the Northwest, um, you're going to find a, a negligible uh, evangelical presence that's much like what you might find if you went to, say, Australia or New Zealand or yeah. parts of Canada. Yeah. But if you go through the South or you go through parts of the Midwest, then you're going to have a much larger percentage. And I think that that uh, we tend to talk about 
evangelicalism in the United States is if yeah. it's this kind of monolith, but it really is geographically impacted in terms of who's where. Yeah, no question. Um, the, there's a book uh, by uh, the Gal Frank Newport at Gallup called God is Alive and Well. Mm -hmm. uh, it's actually, uh, again, a real researcher mm -hmm. writing a real book on research and saying, uh, you know what the real numbers show. And uh, I interviewed him, and, and you can actually, if you Google our names, Ed Stetzer, Frank Newport, you can find it. He's a, he's a, you see, you'll see him on CNN, you mm -hmm. see him on TV all the time. Um, and in that conversation, we talked a little bit about the most church state, the most evangelical church, but church period state, um, is actually um, is actually Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And so if you go to, uh, to New England, let's say to New Hampshire, and, and what's fascinating is this, is that New Hampshire and Mississippi are polar opposites. Mm -hmm. If you move from New Hampshire to Mississippi, your religiosity, kind of research terms, your religiosity tends to go up. If you move from Mississippi to New Hampshire, it tends to go down. So it appears the soil secularizes or saves you. Um, <laughs> that or the air or something. The air or something. Yeah. But part of the reason is, is you go to Mississippi and people, when you move in, people say, hey, where do you go to church? Mm -hmm. Where do you go to church? It's like the second question. Where'd you go? Where'd you put your kids in school? Where do you go to church? Where, and that's not a question people ask in New Hampshire. So when you talk about the future, I think the future looks like, uh, I wrote this in a USA Today article. If you're, uh, the, they asked me to write an analysis of the Pew Forum numbers. And if you read the column, it's just, it, I talk about the nuns and you could Google that. But I think it looks like the Northwest, mm -hmm. the future of faith in the United States. I don't think it looks like Europe, too many wars fought. I mean, there's mm -hmm. blood spilled for hundreds of years yeah. over uh, Christianity with air quotes. Um, but, but the Pacific Northwest, there are, and I use the example of the Foursquare. I have a mm -hmm. lot of, I work a lot with the Foursquare church. Any Foursquare folks here? Yeah, okay, awesome. So, so um, we, I've probably met you somewhere along the way. I, I've been, no, you don't, you don't go to the national meeting? Okay. <laughs> I've been in three or four of the last national meetings. Uh, I've ever been privileged to speak in there, but good, good people. Um, but they're, they have robust churches throughout the Northwest, and they're, they, they, they've had 160,000 water baptisms. When you're Pentecostal, you have to add the word water before baptisms. It matters. Uh, it's, it's a different kind. Um, 160,000 water baptisms, 40-plus churches planted. And so what you see in the Pacific Northwest is the culture is sort of over it. Mm -hmm. The culture's not over it in Mississippi or Texas or Tennessee. Mm -hmm. The culture's sort of over it. But there's still a you know, decent percentage of the population that's evangelical. Churches are being planted and growing and reaching people. But the culture, by and large, is more secular. I think that's the future. I don't think the future is New England. I think the future is, the, is more the Northwest. I think that's what Texas will look like 50 to 100 years from now. So what does that mean for seminary students who are graduating? What have, what it, we talked about this a little bit earlier today, but I want to revisit the question. What advice would you give to people who are headed out in ministry in terms of the future and, the, and what they can expect as they, as they minister? And, and perhaps underneath this question, I have this. How is ministry changing as a result of what has happened culturally versus perhaps when you and I were starting to go to school? Well, when I was a small boy, I used to read your books. That's right. Uh, so it's, uh, uh, I don't know that the time frame is quite the same. Um, but I remember sitting in your lap listening to your stories, Grandpa. Yeah, I believe that. Um, yeah, that's right. So, but um, a couple Help things. Help me out, son. Yeah, there you go. There you go. There you, go. Um, you know, a couple of things. I, I, I would say that, and I, you probably picked up earlier, I, I wouldn't believe the doom and gloom. Because remember, according to Michael Spencer, um, you know, the internet monk, we only have five years left until evangelicalism is all gone. And, and I can tell you that's been the prediction for a very, very long time.
But again, statistically, contrary to the doom and gloom, people who will write a book, pull some stats, one of the things you'll find is people will always find the worst possible stats that are an outlier that nobody else has peer reviewed or looked at and say, look, it's all gonna die. Buy my book to fix it. Um, <laughs> and I would, say, I would say to you that you're probably gonna go to a church. Uh, most churches are plateaued or declining. Um, but plateaued, it means, plateaued means plateau. It doesn't mean collapse or close. So you're probably gonna go to a plateau or decline churches, 70s in the 70s percentage of churches are that. Um, and so I think you should prepare yourself um, with leadership skills and revitalization skills and um, to, to, if you're gonna pastor specifically, mm -hmm. I think what you mentioned. Yes. Um, I think that we need to recognize that culturally, um, we've lost our home field advantage. And, and I'll talk about that a little bit too, but, but, but in other words, um, and, and maybe Texas and Tennessee is still different, but Texas and Tennessee aren't shaping the culture. Mm -hmm. um, you know, where, I mean, Tennessee is, but uh, <laughs> I just would That's say. That's why you like singing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I just, I just say that we had Taylor Swift. Yeah, uh, okay. <laughs> so actually Taylor Swift uh, lived in the same uh, before she was famous in the same city that that uh, that I live in, so so my daughters, uh, I've actually been to a Taylor Swift concert. It's an ocean of estrogen, uh, and uh, but it was uh, it was actually quite weird because uh, I took my daughters, and it was like ah, that was me. Get me out of here. Uh, we are never ever getting back together. Um, just shake it off. Uh, so um, so anyway. So, so what I would say is, is that, that there's still going to be some Bible Belter stuff, but I would say one of the challenges culturally that we're gonna to have to address is, is that most churches, your denominations or the churches from which you come, uh, get locked in the era where they were most successful. So Baptists, you know, I, I, I hail from a, a Baptist tradition. You know, if the 50s come back, they are ready to go. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know that hymnal. Yeah, exactly. 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 Um, you know, and, and then, then, you know, and, and again, I've said that at the national meeting uh, at the Southern Baptist, and they invited me back to speak again. I'm like, really? Um, after what I said last time, I also said that I come every year to the Southern Baptist Convention because it makes me feel young and thin. Uh, but <laughs> invited me back the next year to speak again. Um, but I think, I think so Baptists kind of lock there. Um, but then there was a big move in the 80s, right? So everyone, mm -hmm. you know, kind of got Hawaiian shirts and shoes without socks and started singing that, you know, big sound prom song to Jesus kind of feel in the 80s. And what I would say is I look around now and a lot of churches, man, their, their band looks like the Beach Boys, not in the 60s, but today. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and they look around, there's no 25-year-olds in the building. Mm -hmm. And so what I would say is, and, and, if, and this is the Bible church tradition, right? So thriving in the 70s and the 80s, but mm -hmm. let's, let's look around the Bible church tradition today. Um, I've consulted with, with several mm -hmm. of them, stuck, unsure what to do, um, kind, of, kind, of, kind of launched in this movement and now, now kind of struggling. So what I would say is I think you're going to have to go into situations where you have to lead people to think uh, in missional ways is the phrase that, that, that I tend to use, but in, in missionary-like ways. So how do we engage a culture that's shifted? It's shifted culturally. It's become more secular. Uh, it's become more tolerant. And so you can't get up and just say, well, this is what the Bible says. Well, I mean, so how do, you know, I'm an expository preaching kind of guy. Um, so, so how do I get up into a secular society and say, well, this is what the Bible says when they say, so what? And so if I'm trained to 
you know, point by point, word by word, verse by verse, teach people what the Bible says, and nobody cares what the Bible says. That's I have, to, I have to begin, I have to come back and, and change my presuppositions. Yeah, I like to say two things about this, because this is an important observation. One is we've gone from a culture where the Bible was the answer to now the Bible's the question. It's fair. So you can't open up the Bible and assume that the answer it provides is something people are going to trust. It might be interesting to them. Mm-hmm. Even, even church people. That's right. And then the second one is it's one thing to say uh, it's in the it's true because it's in the Bible. Right. It's another thing to say uh, it's in the Bible because it's true. Yeah. And that difference is also significant. And I think pastors are going to have to work harder at explaining the idea that it's in the Bible because it's true and yeah. then unpack the truthfulness of what's yeah. there. But the problem is they're going to have to do that simultaneously to the world that thinks what's in the Bible is unjust. That, that's right. Or so, or any other uh, half dozen other things yeah. that can be a problem in yeah. relationship to yeah. it. Um, so 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 there is a, there's a whole layer of engagement, if you think yeah. about it that way, Agreed. that you have to that you can't presuppose. Yeah. And that makes the burden on the scriptures, um, uh, burden on teaching the scriptures, uh, more challenging. There's a whole area of apologetics that is completely different now, in terms of what you are forced to engage with right. than would have been 30 years ago. 30 years ago, if someone had produced a story saying there are extra biblical gospels teaching that Jesus was married, okay, yeah. that that would have been laughed off as it's comedy, yeah. okay. That's Marvel Comics stuff, yeah. all right, but. Today, that runs on, on mainline television. Yep. People take it seriously, yep. and, and they don't even consider what the pedigree is of where the information is yeah, coming Yeah, the most from. recent, the, the Harvard, the public disaster. Yes. I mean, what a, I mean it was on, it was on uh, I forget which magazines, was it Time and all, a front page of a oh, bunch yeah, of Oh, yeah, absolutely. Them. And like within weeks was completely debunked. That's right. And so, you know, so, but again, Easter's coming. Expect another uh, Christmas and Easter. Wife. That's exactly. right. Well, that's what we, we, that's where we got the renewal of Jesus's wife, really a re, re, um, a rebaking of something that the Da Vinci Code raised yeah. um, using what probably is an extra biblical uh, uh, Jewish text uh, decoded so that it's not about the two figures of the text, but recoded to be Jesus and Mary. And in that way, we get through this parabolic uh, mythic jump, yeah. the idea that Jesus is married and, and people buy it. And so, um, yeah, and most people don't even know what that material is, yeah. much less be in a position to comment on it. Sure. So, uh, very, very important kind of process. Well, um, our, our time for our interview, I think, is up. Let me, let me um, th- there are open mics here. So as you have questions, feel free to approach the mics and we'll continue our conversation. Way or too we'll many go. people got up fast. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> these better be easy questions. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, I think I know these students better than that. I think you're in for a All long right, night. All right, let's, let's okay. rock and roll. You ready to roll? Okay, well, we'll we'll go over here where there are two, and over there there's one. So we'll start over here to keep the line. Well, first off, there's been a lot of great information. I kind of feel like I'm trying to drink from a fire hydrant. Sorry about that. (laughs) No, it's good. It's good. Um, My question has to do with taking all this information about evangelicalism and translating it into how does that look in evangelism? Yeah. A lot of my family are not believers. And so one of the things I'm noticing in hurdles with having conversations about the gospel is that there's all these stereotypes and pre- preconceived notions that they have, and so it's not so much throwing new truth at them, but rather undoing untruths yeah. that are already there. And so can you speak to some stereotypes that evangelicalism has, and 
how do we go about portraying an authentic, genuine identity and what we're about in portraying the gospel. That's so good. Tell me your name. Kara. Kara? Yes, sir. Kara. Good question, Kara. And what I'm passionate about. Well, most of my family aren't believers. Um, and for 30 years, you know, I've been sharing the gospel. And and, and I, I think there's there's simultaneously, Kara, there's, there's two factors. I, uh, I mean, many more than this, but two, let me just address. One is the misperceptions. Uh, what do we believe? What do we really believe? And so, um, so and, and sometimes then there's the correct perceptions of what we do believe that is rejected. Um, and so for me, um, you know, I think both of those have to be sort of addressed. So, you know, I recently flew down to meet with my, my dad, who is, is not, a, not a believer. And when I say he's not a believer, I'm not like saying he's a Lutheran or something. Uh, sometimes when you're with our people, you gotta say <laughs> that that means he's like really not a believer. Um, and you know, so there's some misperceptions. So, so I, I talked to my dad about, um, you know, what it means that Jesus, why did Jesus die on the cross for our sin and in our place? His perception was maybe he's an example, maybe he's a good person. And, uh, and so, so sometimes mis- or may, maybe evangelicals think you're, you're all dying and going to hell and you know, because you're not good enough. And so I addressed the misperceptions, but then really for my dad, it was just, he, he had correct perceptions that he has had different, different beliefs on. So, you know, so ultimately for him, he doesn't believe that sin is uh, cosmic treason. Right, that 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 it breaks the relationship, that that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But since he has no presuppositional belief in the Bible, you know, I, I, well, let's look at Romans. Let's go down the Roman road. Roman road would mean nothing to him. Um, so, so both of those sort of have to be at work. So, what I try to do in any kind of evangelistic conversation is to is is to deal with some of the mis- misperceptions that are there if they have them, uh, and then I try to maybe undermine some of their perceptions or disagreements with that. And I find Tim Keller's stuff really helpful on this, uh, uh, sort of their, their, their arguments, you know, how do you undermine some of the arguments, defeater arguments, he calls them. You might Google Tim Keller defeater arguments if you're, if you're so inclined. But I think that's necessary today. You know, when, when Daryl was a kid in the 20s, um, <laughs> I mean, if you sort of said to somebody, you need to be saved, people would say, you're right, I do. You know, when I first became a Christian, I was a Young, I was a young man, um, and I came home. First one I witnessed to was my dad. So this is 1977, right? So I come home to my dad, and you know, we grew up Irish Catholic, and the, and the Catholic Church was really the church we didn't go to. Uh, but we knew where it was, but and we didn't like Protestants. But I become a believer. I go to my dad and say, Dad, are you saved? And my dad says, saved from what? And I said, man, I don't know, but you need to be. <laughs> um, and so in a world of the 50s, if I said, are you saved, people would, have, people would have got that. Today, those words are 15 definitions away from having any meaning. Saved from, what does it mean? What does it mean sin? What does it mean to be dead in our trespasses and sins? Why did Jesus die on the cross for our sin and in our place? So what I would say is evangelism, um, we, we live, we kind of, we're kind of a harvest-oriented people in an unseated field. That, think mm-hmm. on that for a second. We're a harvest-oriented people, so we think you know the standard evangelical pickup line for the uh, for the last uh, thirty years is if you were to die today. Oh no! Don't go here. <laughs> uh, I can't. I can't go here. Uh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm going to follow up. Okay. Um, <laughs> if you if you were to die today, do you know for sure that people go to heaven or to hell? Well, you know, so I actually, one of the coolest things about my job is that if I have a question about something, I can actually uh, poll on it. And so I actually asked, does anybody really think that way uh, if they were to die today? And so what I, what I did, let me, let me show you real quick. This is why I keep my computer handy because <laughs> it's my ADD kicking in at any moment. Squirrel. And so I want to be 
I want to be ready. So we actually polled, uh, uh, I, f- I think it was a thousand Americans, but l- let me let me see if I can pull it up here. And what we asked them was, you know, how often do you wonder if I were to die today, uh, do I know for sure? Um, I'm kind of bothered I can't find this. I usually can find this um, much, much more quickly. Can I fill in while you're looking? Yeah, go ahead. help you look. Yeah, go ahead. Um, then another element to this question is I think we have, and, and Ed's already alluded to this, a language that we use that's very theological. Yeah. We have to de-theologize our language and explain it so that people get what it is we're really going after. Let me use an example. Okay, big word for us is sin, only that's not how it's heard. When you say the word sin, what most people hear because of their background, sin. I mean, yeah. it's a very negative, it, it, it comes over with all kinds of neg- negativity. But it's driving at a concept that actually most people buy, they just don't, they just don't think about it. Sure. If you change that to the word dysfunction, which I grant is not the same thing, but it's, at least we're in the ballpark. Wow, okay. Joel Osteen right That's here. right, if you change uh. the word, word dysfunction, and you get people to a- ask the question, is your life dysfunctional? Yeah. You'll actually get a confession. Okay? You'll, you'll, you, you, people actually will acknowledge that their life is confessional because they'll acknowledge they have problems sure. in their life and sometimes they mismanage their lives and they know it. Okay? Now, if I can get a person down, walking down that road and then about three quarters of the way down, I say, well, you know what the scripture calls that oftentimes? Sin. Yeah, okay. All right. You're starting. I'm in a different, completely you're starting different place. Further back. Yeah, that's right. In the evangelistic conversation. And you're working, and you're working your way towards some level of mutual understanding, so that you can move towards some level of substantive engagement. That's good. And 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 so it isn't it isn't to shy away from saying I'm never going to use the word sin. Sure. It's to okay. build the bridge so that when you get to the concept. A person is actually in the position of being able to grasp it. Okay, let me throw some numbers around because okay. it makes me feel better. Okay. Uh, by the way, I think I stole the phrase harvest. No, I stole the phrase harvest-oriented people in an uh, unseated field from a guy named Chuck Kelly, just for full disclosure. So here's the poll we did. A thousand Americans. Um, how often do you wonder if I were to die today, do you know for sure I go to heaven? I was stunned that like uh, 20% of Americans wonder that every day. I'm like, really? Really? Are we polling like hospital wards? and? <laughs> Military units about to deploy. Now, these, uh, were these unbelievers who were being called? Uh, this is all Americans. Okay. Matter of fact, all 18% right. of evangelicals say they wonder every day if I were to die today. That's why they're evangelical. It. Sweet mother of <laughs> Kill me now. Yeah, exactly. But so here's the thing. Um, and the EE people used our data too, so it's all good. They're not mad at us. Um, they were at first, but anyway. Uh, but when you ask it a little differently, back to your point, Daryl, you ask it a little differently. Let's start not at heaven and dying, mm-hmm. but at meaning and purpose. Mm-hmm. The numbers shift. You look at the screen. How often do you wonder how can I find meaning and purpose in life? So to the point where actually now, well, let's compare them. Um, the nevers are down and the dailies are up. And so this is, so for me, starting at the right place, um, dealing with misperceptions as you addressed, but also dealing with correct perceptions, but just disagreements. And then ultimately, you know, it's ultimately a question of trusting the, trusting the spirit to work. And it's not, it's not easy. You know, I, I come from a family Lots of non-believers, but I will tell you, um, mostly non-believers in my family, right? So my, my mother comes to Christ first, and uh, and then later they my her she gets married, and they they kind of uh, they migrate into Orthodoxy, uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, like like a lot of evangelicals did in the '80s. Um, I, I didn't, obviously, um, but um, but the rest of my family are not. So, but I, I was here at lunchtime, and there's people from Pantigo Bible Church here. And they have a church plant at a Pantigo Bible Church. And I met the pastor, and he comes to me at a conference I was speaking at. He says, are you related to Bill Stetzer? 
And I said, yeah, I, mean, I have a Bill Stetzer. When he goes to my church, oh, that's not the same Bill Stetzer, I can assure you. Um, and it turns out it's my uncle who comes to Jesus in his 50s at a church plant in Texas, moved out of New York City with all of our family, and I would have never guessed. And so now, right now, there's my, my uncle and I both get to evangelize my dad. Uh, and so in God's goodness and grace, he's, he's, he's at work. He's at work. Aslan's on the move. So, Here's, here's another element. Here's why I really dislike this. Um, if you died today, would you go to heaven? Think about what that actually communicates theologically about what the gospel is ultimately about. The, go the gospel is ultimately about escaping a place, a very warm and uncomfortable place, and living somewhere else and sometime in the future uh, forever and ever. It totally discounts the fact that I'm made in the image of God, that I'm here to actually function in relationship to God now, uh, not just in the future. And, and uh, I, I like to say there are really two ways that message gets interpreted. It's either the Jimmy Cagney way, you dirty rat, you shouldn't be doing that, and you try and set up the gospel that way. Jimmy, Jimmy Cagney really resonated with the room. <laughs> I know. That's why I use the illustration. Actually, when I do that illustration, I do, I do it two ways. I do the Jimmy Cagney illustration. That's for the over 45s. The and over then, 65s. <laughs> uh, well, I do explain it's just my parents' help, help everybody out there. That's, that's black right. and white on the screen. Very good. That's Jimmy Cagney. That's Jimmy Cagney. You dirty That rat. actually is the picture I show when there, I preach. I like there that. I like that. Because uh, I want them to connect with the past. And then and then I use the picture of the Matrix. Oh. Okay. Neo. Oh. Who? What's Neo doing? He's dodging bullets. And the question about the gospel is basically how do I dodge the bullet of going to hell? And, and I'm asking myself, is that what the gospel is ultimately about? And I think when we poorly translate what our theology is by asking a question that works for us yeah. but doesn't work for the person we're asking it to, we actually do a lot of danger even in setting up the conversation we want to have because we're taking them ultimately to a place that although has a slot for us isn't really the place where the Bible is trying to take people which is to reconnect them into an ongoing vibrant relationship with the living God. Nice. So your matrix evangelization plan, do you say, do you want to take the red pill or the blue pill? Is that <laughs> no, your because that politically puts us in a bad place. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. That's a good point. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this special dinner edition of the Table Podcast with Ed Stetzer. I think we found it a very fascinating conversation about the status of evangelicalism in North America at the current time, despite the claims of some that uh, Christianity is in decline. The key distinction that Ed was making is that although denominations are in decline, evangelicalism has remained fairly stable during this period, and it may be the case that evangelicalism has plateaued. That's certainly the case. But, uh, but the idea of a decline of evangelicalism seems not to be reflected by the evidence. I think it's also interesting uh, the parts of the discussion that dealt with how to better engage a shifting culture, that quoting the Bible to people alone is not going to work in a context in which uh, the Bible doesn't carry authority for people. So we have to ask the question, um, do I cite something as true because it's in the Bible, or do I cite uh, the Bible, the fact that it's in the Bible because it's true? And if it's the latter, if it's true 
uh, by the very nature of what is being affirmed, and that happens to have found its place in the Bible, then we need to probe what is it that makes what's being said in the Scripture uh, true. What is it about what is being said that's truthful, that leads to an authentic way of living, that leads to a better way of life, to either the common good or to human flourishing, or to living in a way that honors God? These are themes that I think the church needs to continue to wrestle with. And it, it's an interesting conversation in which we see the combination of how polling work and our reflection on culture can help one another. So we thank you for being a part of the table, and we look forward to having you back with us again soon. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.